Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1931, the 35th season of the VFL. 1931 Melbourne was a place that we would find both familiar and yet very different to the modern city. The first talkie documentary made in Australia was a travelogue on Melbourne made in 1931, showcasing St Kilda Road, the Arra, the Botanic Gardens and more. If you want to see the city as it was when this season unfolded, check the link on the grandfinalhistory.au website. In 1931, in the business world, the Holden Motor Body Builders was purchased by the American car maker General Motors and renamed General Motors Holden. The ongoing economic impact of the Great Depression had a massive political impact in 1931. In June, the federal government and all state government premiers met and agreed to an economic plan that resulted in a split of the Labour Party, who had only just come to power in 1929. The plan required the Australian federal and state governments to cut spending by 20%, including cuts to wages and pensions, and that was to be accompanied by tax increases and reductions in interest on bank deposits. Not a surprise that implementing this plan was not supported by all members of the Labor government. The Federal Labor Party split and lost the 1931 election, with Joseph Lyons becoming Prime Minister in December 1931. In news around the world, 1931 was the year that the Empire State Building opened, becoming the tallest building in the world, until the first World Trade Centre building took that record in 1970. And a man who had helped shape much of how we live in the modern world, American inventor Thomas Edison, who patented the motion picture camera, the light bulb and the phonograph, amongst many other things, died at the age of 84. But 1931 also saw other inventions we now take for granted. In Budapest, Laszlo Biro exhibited his ballpoint pen, and many Biros have been used to capture scores in footy records across the years. And George Beauchamp in America invented the electric guitar. Many memorable grand final entertainers have shown us their skills on electric guitars, except perhaps Meatloaf. And, in personal grooming news, the first successful electric shavers went on sale in the United States. The Schick brand continues today, with some AFL players keeping themselves very well groomed. On to football matters for 1931. January saw the league reducing tensions with one traditional sparring partner, while increasing strain with another. An agreement had been reached with the VFA to prevent players moving without clearances between the two organisations, reducing the bargaining power of players and improving the economy of clubs. It seemed a time of improved relationships was at hand between the VFL and the VFA, but we know that it won't last for too long. Relationships with cricket clubs and the Ground Management Association that controlled many of the grounds that were subsidised by football club revenues was now the focus. The VFL had gone to the Minister of Lands in search of a better arrangement and the fixture for the season was on hold until the league could decide which grounds were to be used. It had been an ongoing issue but with the downturn in economic conditions 
the status quo could not be maintained. This dispute and its eventual resolution could be seen as one of the turning points where the League began to significantly exert its influence and take commercial positions to ensure its economic prosperity. The Ground Management Association was a body that represented a number of cricket clubs to ensure a uniform approach to managing grounds. Cricket clubs had history and tradition on their side. But football clubs were just seen as mere tenants at cricket grounds. The VFL wanted the relationship to be a fair business partnership that recognised the revenue and value contributed to these grounds by football clubs, even if that meant upsetting some of the traditional privileges held by cricket club members, such as free entry to the member stand during the football season, not just for the male cricket club member, but also for the two ladies' tickets that he held as well. In a time of economic hardship where money was not flowing as freely as before, the VFL and their secretary, like McBride, was not going to settle for dud deals anymore. The league announced that it had entered into negotiations with the Motordrome, a sports ground on land now occupied by the Amy Stadium, or the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, as per ABC naming conventions, and three other undisclosed grounds. A conference was held on Friday, February 6, with representatives of the VFL, the Victorian Cricket Association, the Ground Management Association, and the Minister of Lands. The Cricket Association was adamant it needed 26 weeks of the year and two weeks for top dressing of grounds to ensure they had the highest standard of cricket for an international game. They observed that New South Wales had four weeks for top dressing, but at least one person in the room interjected that New South Wales still could not beat Victoria. A compromise was proposed, with the VFL and the Victorian Cricket Association having 25 weeks each, with two weeks for top dressing. But this compromise was rejected by the Victorian Cricket Association at their meeting the following week, creating a very tense situation with the league. Other topics yet to be resolved included the revenue share from catering, advertising, car parking, and that any radio broadcasts to be under VFL control. The league also wanted money raised to be spent on improvements to the outer, not just to the members' reserves in each ground. It was the supporters in the outer that were providing most of the revenue, but getting little benefit under current arrangements. Negotiations took weeks and were heated. By the end of February, the Ground Management Association declared that it would set up a rival football league to play on their grounds, hinting that two VFA clubs were interested. VFL Secretary, like McBrien, said, let them go ahead, and then made the point that the VFL and VFA had an agreement that no club could leave either competition without agreement, and that there was a £1,000 penalty if they tried which is approximately $100,000 in modern money. And players leaving without clearances would be disqualified from football across the country. As the dispute dragged on, there would be hints of a resolution and then a breakdown. On the 12th of March, the newspapers reported that the dispute, which had started in January, had finally been resolved, with the agreement between the two delegates from each side simply having to be signed off by their respective organisations. But, by Friday night, it was all off. 
and angry, like McBride, reported back to the VFL delegates' meeting. The agreed proposal, hammered out by two representatives of each organisation, had been presented to the Ground Management Association. Mr McBride was given a courteous hearing where he was able to explain the VFL's position, and he was thanked for his attendance. But then, to quote Mr McBride directly, Imagine my amazement when I learned later that scarcely had I gotten to the lift to leave the building, the meeting decided to reject the League's proposals and that one of the men who had undertaken to support them voted against them and the other had not voted at all. How on earth is it possible to do business with men of that description? The VFL then issued the fixture for season 1931 with many games scheduled at the Exhibition Oval next to the Exhibition Buildings on land now covered by the Melbourne Museum and the Motodrome opposite the MCG. I'll include pictures of both grounds on the grandfinalhistory.au website. Seeing a football ground next door to the Exhibition Buildings is a strange sight. Perhaps we would not have the Dockland Stadium if that ground had continued to be used. The reaction from the Ground Management Association was swift and dramatic. In a critical and extraordinary development, the Secretary of the Ground Management Association said they had no alternative but to form another football body. The association would give notice to tenant football clubs that if they desired to play on the grounds, it had to be on ground management association terms, or they would have to leave the grounds within one week of EFL season, and the entire competition looked as if it was falling apart. But we know that didn't happen. The next day, the Victorian Government Minister of Lands called the parties in and mandated an arbitrated solution. The cricket club members could still go to football games, but the clubs would have to pay the league £20 per 100 members per year. The VFL had wanted £30, and the cricketers had not wanted to pay at all. The VFL would also redo its fixtures with games to be played at the traditional home grounds. It was not as much as the VFL wanted, but they were vindicated by the fact that the cricketers were now paying the VFL for the games that the VFL was putting on. The fallout from the dispute and forced arbitration continued into April and became somewhat petty. The Ground Management Association decided that it would no longer allow VFL life members to have free access to grounds during the cricket season, which had been a nice benefit if you wanted to go to the Sheffield Shield games or to test matches. The VFL made a similar decision that the Victorian Cricket Association life members would not have free access to grounds during the football season. Fair to say that friendly relations were now in the past. Back to football matters. March 1931 saw news that Collingwood supporters were dreading. Albert Collier, the 1929 Brownlow medalist, was off to Tasmania to captain coach Canore in Hobart for £9 per week and a guaranteed job as a builder's labourer for £7 per week. Given Albert was unemployed, Collingwood did not oppose a clearance. Now clearly, Collingwood could have found the money to pay Collier enough to get him to stay. But that would have broken the iron principle that all Collingwood players get paid the same amount. Better to lose a star player than undermine the club's guiding rule. Mid-March saw the Sporting Globe reviewing new recruits. They said, quote, Richmond will try out Jack Dyer, 
a local boy who's been a star in the Metropolitan League. 17 years of age, he's a decided possibility, unquote. I think they got that call right. March also saw news of a new final system being discussed. After Collingwood's fourth premiership in a row, many supporters and clubs thought the advantage of finishing on top of the ladder was too much. A proposal for a new system had been sent into the Sporting Globe by an enthusiast back in 1930. And now Percy Page, the Richmond secretary, was promoting it with other delegates. There would be a first semi-final between third and fourth, with the loser eliminated, and the winner going on to the preliminary final. The second semi, between first and second, had the winner progressing to the grand final, and the loser playing off in the preliminary final. A clear advantage for first and second to reflect their efforts across the season. No perceptions of any incentive to lose a final to get an extra week's revenue from an additional match. And everyone knew how many finals would be held every year. Arguably, there was no need to call the Premiership deciding game a grand final. It was now clearly the final game of the year. So it could have just been called the final. A grand final made sense under the previous system where the top team was using their right of challenge because the scheduled final had not decided the premiership. But, in the way that it was written at the time, it seems that the term grand final had become accepted as the term for the game that decided the premiership. So the name stuck. The new format was adopted at a special meeting in March, agreed by 16 votes to 4, Collingwood and St Kilda being the only clubs to vote no. For many years, it was known as the Page final system because Percy Page proposed it at the delegates meeting. But eventually, the original enthusiast was given their due credit. Kenneth McIntyre was a student at Melbourne University in 1930, studying arts and law, when he sent his proposed system into the Sporting Globe. Despite becoming a lawyer, Ken also had a strong interest in mathematics and would help the league revise the McIntyre final system to a final five in 1972 a final six in 1991, and a final eight in 1994, although this was replaced with a new format final eight in the year 2000. Creating an enduring set of finals playoff systems that spread from the VFL to other sporting codes across Australia and internationally would be enough for most people. But before we leave Kenneth McIntyre, it is worth noting he also became a lawyer, mayor of Box Hill, and in his retirement, wrote extensively on the Portuguese exploration of Australia and the mapping of Australia in the 16th century. The Portuguese government awarded him the Commander of the Order of Prince Henry the Navigator. A full life indeed. After the confusion of the 1930 Brownlow voting, where three players tied on four votes each, and no real clarity on how the tie should be broken, the VFL announced an updated voting system at the AGM in late March. The 3-2-1 votes process, still in use today, was implemented for the 1931 season, although with only one umpire giving votes at the time. As the clubs finalised their coaching appointments for 1931, it became clear that non-playing coaches were becoming more popular. The Herald reviewed the situation in early April noting that the top four teams of 1929 had been non-playing coaches and only two of the first seven teams in 1930 were playing coaches. There would be five coaching changes in 1931, not unusual in an era of high turnover for this position. The new men were Garnet Campbell at Essendon, 
At 28, he'd be the youngest coach for the season, but he'd been captain coach for the Fire Brigade team in the Wednesday League, who were runners-up in 1929, so he had some leadership experience. Despite Geelong reaching the grand final in 1930, under captain coach Arthur Coughlin, a leadership change was implemented. Coughlin continued to play to 1932, but Ted Baker took over as captain, and Charlie Climo would be non-playing coach. Climo had played with St Kilda way back in 1907-09, while still working as a miner in Eaglehawk, before returning to Ballarat full-time in 1910, where he had success as a coach in the Ballarat League. North Melbourne had struggled since joining the VFL, so in 1931 they went for an experienced premiership coach to help mould their young team. If you've been listening to all of the episodes, you might remember Norm Hackenschmidt-Clark. He started with Carlton back in 1905, playing in their premiership hat-trick from 1906 to 1908, and then coached Carlton in back-to-back premierships in 1914 and 15. He also took Richmond to a grand final in 1920, before returning to coaching stints at Carlton and then St Kilda. A total of 183 games as coach, with two premierships as well as a season at Paran in the VFA, before he started at North, aged 56. St Kilda had cleared Bill Cubbins to Footscray, so they appointed Charlie Hardy, who had spent three years at Essendon, and was now the Saints' non-playing coach. He'd won two premierships with Coburg in the VFA, and had been close to getting the Dons into the finals. The Saints were hoping he could get them into the four. And, as mentioned, Footscray were replacing Alan Hopkins with Bill Cubbins as playing coach, after he moved from St Kilda. As the opening of the season approached, VFL secretary, like McBride, provided a preview in the Sporting Globe. He was confident the game's popularity would increase and crowds would be swelled by those who no longer could follow other, more expensive sports. And while rough play would be dealt with by the independent tribunal, he was adamant that the Australian likes a stern game, whether he be playing or watching, and that fair vigour is part and parcel of the code. And if you wanted to learn more about the code of this Australian version of football, April saw the release of one of the first Australian football books, titled The Australian Game of Football. It was authored by Jock McHale, who had coached the last four premierships, Albert Chadwick, who was Melbourne's captain coach of the 1926 premiership, and Eric Taylor, who had trained with Geelong before a knee injury stopped his playing career, and who would teach at Melbourne Grammar from 1917 to 1952, coaching 20 schoolboy premierships. The book was not written for profit, but rather to share the love and enthusiasm for the great Australian game of football. It contained notes on playing, coaching, umpiring, administration, recruitment and more. There is an online version of an updated 1936 edition available from the State Library of Victoria, where you can read the wisdom of these giants of the game. While much of the advice is still applicable to players and administrators of today, I'm not sure that the modern schoolboy is going to embrace the recommended cold shower every morning. And the 1931 edition was not just used by juniors. Charlie Dibbs, who was one of the best fullbacks in the league who had played in the last four premierships, made sure he and other Collingwood players got their copies, and he treasured it for the rest of his life. McHale provided the coaching sections, but he would have also been influential in the economics of the publishing affair. Given inside the book there was an ad from Carlton United Breweries, his employer, for Victoria Bitter, promising 
Radiant Health and other Collingwood businesses associated with the club, such as Sharon Footballs and Dummett Boots. It was sure to fly off the shelves. Many players were moving to Victoria in search of work and the bonus of playing VFL football, but it did not always work out. Charlie Holmes from Broken Hill had impressed when playing for New South Wales in the 1930 Interstate Carnival and was invited to try out with Fitzroy. He got a job at a quarry in Preston, but was nearly blinded when a gelignite charge exploded prematurely and he received the full blast to his face and arms. He would recover to play one game for Fitzroy against Geelong, but that was his entire VFL career. While he regained sight in one eye, the other one suffered ongoing damage, which diminished any hope of a long-term VFL career. An unlucky man. In a sign of the changing times, radio station 3KZ, which had hit the airwaves in December 1930, announced they had exclusive rights to broadcast football matches from Collingwood, Carlton and Fitzroy, and they were finalising arrangements with other grounds. They could not come to terms with South Melbourne though. In a history of 3KZ, it's described how the station built a tower outside the ground so Norman Banks and others could broadcast games. But then South Melbourne officials set up a large Hessian awning to impede their view. The MCG had different rules, with the Melbourne Cricket Club ruling that no sponsors' names could be mentioned by announcers at the ground, apparently to prevent offence to austere members. The station just ran the ads from the studio. The ban lasted for many years, but is not in force in modern times. The season started on Saturday the 2nd of May. The last full practice games had been held two weeks earlier, with no games allowed on Anzac Day, which fell on a Saturday this year. The previews in the week before the first round were confident of a good season with strong crowds, even in gloomy times. The low cost of nine pence for a game would still allow many to get some entertainment each week. But the depression also meant that umpires took a pay cut for the season. The big question for the year was whether Collingwood would maintain their dominance and which club, if any, would be the ones to take their place. Many eyes were also sure to be on new Fitzroy recruit Hayden Bunton, finally making his debut after his suspension for the entirety of the 1930 season. After all the months of wrangling over grounds, after the decisions for the new final system and the new Brownlow voting, and despite the loss of some key players to other states or country clubs in search of employment, perhaps balanced out by players from interstate clubs coming to Melbourne also in search of jobs, and, for many players, the £3 per week for playing would be their only income, the season was finally underway. Except it almost wasn't. And it was our old friends, the Ground Management Association, that collective of cricket clubs was at the centre of things again. While the major issues, such as the division of the year between football and cricket, and the requirement of cricket clubs to pay the VFL an agreed amount for cricket club members to be allowed to access football games, had all been resolved by the intervention of the Minister for Lands, there were some less dramatic, but still important, issues to be finalised. Things such as the payment of state government amusement tax, and the allocation of tickets for visiting club members and officials, etc. It was agreed that VFL Secretary, like McBride, and the Ground Management Association Secretary, would meet and negotiate. The terms were agreed. 
documented in two copies and signed by both officials. But at their Wednesday night meeting, the Ground Management Association refused to accept the agreement that their secretary had negotiated and signed on their behalf. Understandably, the VFL was not happy. This was not the first time the association had walked away from a negotiated agreement. On Friday, clubs contacted the VFL to advise they had not received their allocation of tickets for visiting club officials. So, for example, at the St Kilda-Essendon game, the Essendon football club officials would have to stand in the outer, on a hill to watch the game, while the 25 members of the Essendon Ground Management Association would walk in on free passes to reserve seats in the members' grandstand. On that Friday before the first round, Mr Like McBrien advised the Minister of Lands that under these circumstances, the VFL would have to cancel the first round. Mr McBrien stressed that the Ground Management Association was not an independent body, but a cricket organisation denying football clubs the right to enter cricket reserves, which should be noted are all on Crown land. The Minister issued instructions that the Ground Management Association was not to carry out its plans and that traditional practices should resume, and hence the round proceeded as planned. It will be some time before relationships are cordial between the two organisations, but the VFL had demonstrated it had the ability to call on the government to help its cause. Over 103,000 people went to the six games, unaware of the -the behind-the-scenes drama that had unfolded and nearly stopped the play. The top four teams from 1930 played each other in the opening round and Collingwood unfurled their premiership flag at Victoria Park in front of the Geelong team. And in the close game between these two evenly matched clubs, Collingwood managed to hold off a fast-finishing Geelong to record yet another win. At Princess Park, Carlton hosted Richmond and the last quarter saw a frenzy of goal-kicking with seven majors to the Tigers and five to the Blues and it was the Tigers coming from behind to win by nine points. St Kilda held off Essendon by eight points, and Melbourne got home by two goals against Fitzroy. The only team that did not look like winning was once again North Melbourne, thrashed by South Melbourne, and, once again, the Shinboners were looking at a long, hard season. The second round of the season was special for Richmond on two counts. Firstly, they went on a goal-kicking spree against the struggling North Melbourne, setting a record score of 20 goals 6, 199, to North's 4 goals 7, 31. Have I said that it's going to be another tough year for North? And it was also the debut game for Richmond immortal Jack Dyer. But he did not score a goal, get a kick, or lay a tackle. He spent the whole day on the bench as 19th man. It was pointed out later that his match fee as 19th man was half that of a standard player, but if he went onto the ground, he would get the full £3. Given the club had the game won from the start, they wanted to save the 30 shillings. Dyer admitted to giving his match jumper to his brother, which got him into trouble when he was selected again later in the season. The club was not happy providing a second jumper. June 6 saw a rare game between the VFA and the VFL on the MCG. In a sign of the improved relations between the competing bodies, agreement had been reached to play the game for charity, raising funds for the blind. 
Only the players and trainers were getting into the ground for free. League and association officials would enter via normal turnstiles rather than displaying their badges of office. The normal round had been split. Three games were played on the King's birthday holiday on the Monday and the other three would be played on June 27 when a bye had been originally scheduled to coincide with the interstate game against South Australia in Adelaide. The game would be played under Australian Football Council rules, which the VFL used. The VFA would have to give up the flick pass and get used to the out-of-bounds rule, which gave a free kick against the team that last touched the ball before it went out. The league had its honour to protect, given that it was expected to win, and the Sporting Globe presented it as an opportunity to avenge Essendon's 1924 loss to Footscray, when their respective premiers played, and it was the Bulldogs that won a controversial game. But now, Footscray were in the VFL, so was it really revenge? It was the first time representative teams from both bodies had played since 1900, just a few years after the 1897 breakaway, when a benefit game was held for old Melbourne rover Fred McGuinness. But, despite all the efforts of officials and players, and the anticipation of supporters, the rain spoilt the big occasion. 16,000 people attended the game, but the ground was a swamp, with pools of water on the wings and the flanks. The association players held their own in the first two quarters, but after half-time, it was one-way traffic, or a one-way tide, with the VFL winning 12 goals 17 to the VFA on 3 goals 9. Money was raised for a good cause, and perhaps the game could become a regular feature, and the Secretary for the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind was a wise man, taking out rain insurance, which paid off handsomely given the downfalls on the day. After the first six weeks of the year, the latter was showing some changes from previous seasons. Richmond was the team on top, undefeated in five games, with a round to be played at the end of June. Melbourne and Geelong were second and third, and Collingwood had already lost two games, sitting fourth just above Carlton. Hawthorne and North were displaying their traditional form since joining the league, yet to get a win. And old powerhouse Fitzroy, despite getting their prize recruit Hayden Button, only had one win so far. Possibly the biggest game of the first third of the season had been the clash of traditional rivals Collingwood and Richmond at Punt Road. 40,000 people had managed to shoehorn themselves into the ground, but it was dangerous for players and spectators. The boundary fence collapsed and people were injured. And the need for better facilities and more room once again showed the strain between cricket clubs and football clubs. Five weeks earlier, the Richmond Football Club had offered to provide free labour to have an old tennis court filled in so it could be used to watch the game and then be further developed into a grandstand. The offer was ignored by the cricket club. Only 20 cricket club members were reported to use the tennis court, but that seemed to be enough to stop developing the ground for the huge crowds that the football club attracted. And now there was talk of the VFL moving big games away from Punt Road to the MCG. In the second third of the season, North Melbourne's struggles were getting attention. The club was in desperate trouble. Membership was down, crowds were down, and the district allocated to it was full of factories and not producing players. In July, the club got an advance of £200 from the league against its end-of-season dividend to address pressing cash flow problems. And, to add to their woes, coach Norm Clark resigned in July 
giving, as his reason, the pressures of business. But it cannot have been a rewarding time, not winning a single game, changing the team each week so that by the halfway mark of the season, already 38 different men had been tried out. John Pemberton, who had played in the club's VFA era before the war, winning two premierships, would take over until the end of the season. He would not fare any better. Geelong, however, showed true sporting spirit and generosity when they returned their share of the gate takings from their game at Arden Street. Seems the memories of the infamous North Melbourne Geelong game at Arden Street in 1925 had faded away. By late July, the season was 12 rounds old, two-thirds of the way to the finals. It had been a wet winter, with floods around Victoria, and the VFL grounds were muddy and in very poor condition, resulting in lower scores than previous seasons. Richmond still held top spot, having just lost one game, followed by Geelong on 10 wins. Carlton and Collingwood made up the four, with South, Footscray and Essendon still looking as if they could challenge if they were good enough in the last six rounds. At the other end of the ladder, Hawthorne had picked up three wins, which was better than some seasons, but North were yet to win a single game. Richmond had avoided their round 12 match against Carlton being moved to the MCG, and with some overdue changes at the ground, 36,000 people managed to watch the game, avoiding the dramas of the earlier overcrowded Collingwood game at Punt Road. It was also a notable game for Tom Downs of the Blues. If you've been listening to previous episodes, you might recall the unfortunate Tom Downs of Carlton. He made his debut in 1927 and played a total of 56 games, which would have been much more, but for being suspended for 60 games. And he was only reported in three matches, all against Richmond. In the 1928 semi-final, he was found guilty of striking Richmond's Jack Fincher and copped 12 games. In the 1929 preliminary final, he was found guilty of striking and elbowing Richmond's Don Harris and got a 19-game suspension. And then, in 1931, after playing 12 games, he came up against Richmond for the second time in the season and was reported for kicking Richmond's captain, Murray Hunter, which earned a 29-game break. Basically, the remainder of 1931 and all of 1932. Not even 2,000 people packed into the Brunswick Town Hall in a protest meeting, nor Robert Menzies, King's Council and later Prime Minister, could get his case opened again. He did return in 1933 for six more games, but none against Richmond. In the modern era, the league is often criticised for the technology used for score reviews, or for when a score review is not done. In 1931, there was an appeal to the VFL by Essendon because of a disputed score. In round 13, Essendon lost by one point to Melbourne at the MCG, but the Dons claimed that the last kick of the third quarter had gone through for a behind, which had not been correctly called by the goal umpire. At an appeal hearing on the following Friday, Essendon called a number of spectators who declared that the ball had crossed the line after passing through the player's hands. The evidence of the goal umpire, the boundary umpire and the field umpire was unanimous that the ball had hit the defender's hands and gone forward before being returned to the field umpire after the bell went. Not surprisingly, the appeal was dismissed. 
just as well that we no longer have any disputed decisions about close shots at goal in the modern era. With the last two weeks of the season, Richmond and Geelong had the two top spots locked up, and Footscray were again behind both Carlton and Collingwood. After playing in the last six grand finals and winning the last four premierships, there were real fears that Collingwood could miss the finals. In round 17, Footscray travelled to Princess Park and held off a fast-finishing Carlton to win by four points, while down at the Junction Oval, Collingwood lost to St Kilda. The Blues, Collingwood and Footscray all had 11 wins, but Footscray's percentage was keeping them out of the four. It would come down to the final round. Footscray were confident of a win against North, but could St Kilda get two wins in a row and knock off Carlton? Or would Melbourne do the Bulldogs a favour and defeat Collingwood? Sadly for the Western Oval Club, despite a win on yet another cold wet day that made football difficult, Against a spirited North who were still trying to get at least one victory for the season, the Blues and the Magpies also won their games. There was to be no last-minute entry into their first final series in the VFL, but lifting the club from 11th to 5th spot was encouraging for their supporters. So Footscray claimed the 1931 Almostus Award for missing the finals by just one place but could Collingwood perform better in the finals than they had during this challenging season? The other big news of the final round was Geelong's easy win over Richmond, giving them the top spot on the ladder. But in this first year of the McIntyre Final Four, there really was no difference between first and second, perhaps other than the confidence boost of beating the team they would play in the second semi-final. Richmond had a scare leading up to the finals, Young recruit Jack Dyer had been playing well in the second half of the season, but had been reported in an ugly game in the Wednesday League. Dyer was playing for Yellow Cabs against the Victorian market team. He was reported for kicking, but the charge was not sustained. Writing about his first season, Jack Dyer said Richmond were not happy about him playing in the midweek competition, but he worked at Yellow Cabs and jobs were hard to keep during the Depression, so if your employer said you were playing, you played. Perhaps the one advantage Dyer had was that the president of the Wednesday League Tribunal was also the president of the Richmond Football Club, Jack Archer. Not that this would have in any way influenced the decision, but Dyer was the only one of the four players reported to get off. On the Wednesday after the season, the League Permits Committee met to count the Brownlow medal votes. A longer exercise this year, with each game having three, two and one votes to be counted, rather than just one vote for the best player, as per previous years. And, like many Brownlow vote counts since, it was not until the final round that the winner was known. Hayden Bunton, in his first season in the VFL, won the Brownlow by one vote from Footscray's Alan Hopkins. The first semi-final between Carlton and Collingwood was on Saturday the 19th of September. The Blues had won their home game, as had the Magpies when the teams met earlier in the season, and they both finished the season on 12 wins, so an even contest was anticipated by some. However, the Magpies had really thrashed the Blues three weeks before the finals, and perhaps that is why the Friday Night Herald panel of players and officials were leaning towards Collingwood. 52,000 people were at the game. Happy that this Saturday would at least be a dry one after such a wet season. But they were in for a very one-sided game. 
As Old Boy in the Argus said, Carlton reduced the Collingwood machine to a mere conglomeration of ineffective parts and made the mighty magpies look like a lot of sparrows. Carlton were fired up, and in 1937, their coach Dan Minogue revealed why. After that drubbing at Victoria Park, the insults flew. Some of these Carlton players are squibs, said someone from Collingwood. Minogue did not forget, and in his pre-game address before the semi-final, he did not let his team forget either, telling them the honour of Carlton was in their hands. They did not let their club or their coach down, thrashing Collingwood by 15 goals. They were through to the preliminary final. Collingwood's remarkable run of premiership wins was over. But we will hear from them again. Geelong took on Richmond in the second semi-final. They were two young teams. No player was over 30, and 13 of Richmond's side were under 25. Seven of the Cats players were not even 21. Geelong were looking for their third win of the season against the Tigers. 49,000 were at the game, and they got some unusual entertainment with bands from Mildura and Warnable giving an exhibition of quick-step performance before they took part in a major performance with 30 bands on the MCG on Sunday. In the game of football, it was Richmond showing a quick-step performance with their pace, skill and vigour, leaving Geelong stumbling behind. Perhaps it should not have been a surprise. Geelong had made semi-finals nine times in the VFL's 35 seasons and lost eight times. Geelong selectors had taken a risk in naming their captain and 1930 captain Arthur Coughlin, both of whom were recovering from influenza. But maybe they felt the leadership from these two players was required. And Len Metherill had a dodgy thigh. And we all know the rule for the finals. Never pick an injured player. Unless he plays a really good game, in which case it's an example of selection brilliance. But in this final, Metherill was limping from early in the game and not contributing his best. While some may have thought the game was a bit too physical, there was little that was unfair, and the longer the game went, the more apparent it was that Richmond were going to win, in the end by 33 points. The Tigers were into the grand final, and Geelong were going to play in the first official preliminary final, even if Old Boy in the Argus called it the third semi-final. Carlton would be missing their star forward Harry Clover, who had injured his knee in the game against Collingwood, while Geelong planned to play an unchanged team. There was some hope that Kaji Greaves could make it into the side, but the selectors made the hard decision to give him an additional week in the hope that he might be recovered in the time for the grand final and the hope that they would be in the grand final. Over 60,700 were at the MCG on the first Saturday in October. It was a torrid day for football, rain was frequent, and the wind blew stronger and swung around during the game making it uncomfortable for players and supporters. But those who'd come to the game were entertained with a thrilling match. The league had wanted to postpone or shift the second 18 curtain raiser, but no other ground was available. So the waterlogged surface was churned up further before the main game started. Geelong had to make some late changes, with players coming down with the flu and injuries. Kaji Greaves was brought into the team earlier than planned, but the need was urgent. The wind favoured the punt road end initially, and Carlton took full advantage, kicking seven goals five without Geelong scoring. 
But this was not a fair representation of the game. As Old Boy in the Argus said, one wondered whether it was the skill or the courage or the stamina of the players one admired the most. Umpire Scott was up to the challenge in a game that could have easily slipped out of control given the conditions and the desperation of the players. Twice he stopped the play to allow tempers to cool and let the ball become the focus once more. Scott received an ovation both at half-time and at the end of the game. That is hard to imagine happening in the modern era. By half-time, Geelong had converted a 47-point deficit into a three-point lead to give all their supporters hope and ensure nobody planned to leave the uncomfortable conditions early. The second half was a close and hard-fought affair and both teams had the chance to win it. But it was Geelong centre-half-forward Jack Collins who took a strong mark and kicked the sealer. Geelong winners by six points and on their way to a grand final. And the rain was not all bad news for the league. They picked up an extra £1,000 from their rain insurance. Literally, something for a rainy day. The grand final was overshadowed by the death of respected and admired General Sir John Monash. Well known for his leadership of troops in the First World War, one article written in the London Telegraph even went as far to say that if the war had lasted for another year, he might have become the Commander-in-Chief of Allied Forces. After the war, he applied his engineering and leadership skills as the head of the State Electricity Commission, rolling out electricity generation and transmission across the state, which had a pivotal impact on the lives of millions. He also oversaw the planning of the Shrine of Remembrance, and even worked at improving the capacity of the MCG. The VFL recorded their sympathies at their Friday night delegates meeting and stood for two minutes silence to pay their respects. An extraordinary man whose name today is possibly remembered more for the university and freeway than for his actual life achievements. Richmond's captain in 1931 was Murray Hunter. Originally from Albury, he had joined the club in 1929 and was a fine rover and could be damaging in the forward line, kicking goals off either foot. After retiring as a player, he served on the Richmond committee between 1935-40, to 40, and the Tigers were once again coached by Frank Checker Hughes. This was his fourth grand final in five years coaching the Tigers, but the first three were against the all-conquering Magpies. He would be hoping for a change of luck against Geelong. As a coach, he'd already been in seven grand finals, but runner-up on seven different occasions. Three times with Olverston in Tasmania, once with the Richmond second 18, and three times with the senior team. Today, he hoped it would be different. Geelong's captain was Ted Baker. His VFL career began back in 1920 with one game at Carlton, followed by two seasons at Collingwood, before moving to Geelong in 1927. He represented Victoria on eight occasions, and, like Murray Hunter, was regarded as one of the finest rovers of the time, with trademark stab passes rarely missing their mark. This was his first and only year as captain. And, as discussed earlier, Geelong had appointed Charlie Climo from Ballarat. Since the First World War, he'd been a successful non-playing coach in the Ballarat League, and in the last two seasons had guided Imperials to Premiers and Runners-Up. He'd also played for the Saints before the First World War. 
He was described as one of the first coaches that would go around to work with players individually to improve their skills. Years later, Bob Davis, who would captain Geelong and then coach them to a premiership, described how Charlie Climo took him aside after a golden point game in Ballarat to show him how to protect himself when going for the ball. The umpire for the game was once again Bob Scott for his third grand final in a row, on his way to seven in a row. The previews of the game suggested that the two best teams of the year had made it to the grand final, which was an endorsement for the new final system. In the Friday Night Herald, Highmark, who had taken Kikoro's position, thought Richmond needed a dry ground to show their best, whereas Geelong had thrived in the wet conditions in this very damp season. Richmond was a faster, better marking team, while Geelong was superior on the ground. Geelong had won two of the three games between the clubs so far this season, and the teams would now be very familiar with each other, having played at Correo in the last round of the season, then in the second semi-final, and now the grand final, meaning three games in five weeks between these two well-matched teams. Marketing and sponsorship has a long history in the VFL, and the Friday Night Herald carried an ad from the brewers of Richmond Beer and Richmond Pilsner offering the Tigers. £25 if they won the premiership. One family in Geelong had a special interest in the game on Saturday. The Lambs had four sons chasing premierships in 1931. Ten-year-old Jack had already won a grand final in the Geelong school competition, and 19-year-old Max had also won with the Geelong amateurs, while 23-year-old Garnet would be playing in the reserves, curtain raiser, and 21-year-old Milton was playing in the seniors. A big day and a big month for the Lambs of Geelong. Richmond had two changes from their semi-final team. Harry Weidner, a regular on the half-forward flank, had played every game of the season, but was out with an injured leg, and Jack Twyford, who had moved across from South Melbourne at the start of the season, was in. Wally Gray had played his second game for the season in the semi-final, but had to make way for Kevin O'Neill, a regular player for the Tigers, who had missed the semi through injury. Grand final preparations for Richmond's forward Jack Titus included winning the footballers' dancing competition on the Thursday before the game. He got the Winners' Cup, and the Queen Victoria Hospital got the donations from the event. Selectors in Geelong had to admit Arthur Rayson, who had injured his thigh. He too had played all season in his eighth year at the Cats, but now this fine rover's career was over in the most painful way, missing a grand final. Ted Llewellyn also received the bad news. He was dropped, and next season he would continue his career at North Melbourne. Into the team came Bob Trotton and Les Hardiman, who had both been in the team for most of the season, and came back after recovering from injuries. 60,700 were at the game. Eight trains had made their way from Geelong to see the reserves and their senior team play. 8,000 people were at the grounds before the gates even opened. One small boy thought his day was ruined when he lost his sixpence for admission. As tears streamed down his face, a kindly woman gave him another coin, and life was worth living once more. As they did in 1926, many employers in Geelong had stayed open an extra half hour each day during the week so employees could take the Saturday morning off to get to the ground. But life still continued down at the pivot. The annual schoolgirls athletic carnival was scheduled, but the wonders of new technology meant that radio broadcasts from the MCG could be played over the PA system to keep everyone up to date with the match. 
The curtain raiser was between Geelong and Melbourne's second 18 teams. It was an unhappy start of the day for Geelong supporters, as Melbourne won by 8 points for their first reserves premiership. Before the game started, both teams, wearing black armbands, formed two lines with various officials and umpires at the centre of the ground. The crowd of 60,000 stood at once. No announcements were needed, with their hats removed for two-minute silence for Sir John Monash. The Tigers were favourites and had been runners-up three times in a row between 1927, 28 and 29. So winning their premiership was crucial for them. But Geelong also wanted to make up for their 1930 loss to the Magpies. Only one could claim the prize. It was a fine day, but windy. Geelong started slowly, kicking with the wind to the punt road end. But they only had a one-goal lead at quarter time. But the second quarter was theirs, with goals to Trotton, Maloney and Metherill, catching Richmond off guard. One of the highlights of the game was when Jack Carney, known as Mickey Mouse Carney because, at 160 centimetres, he was one of the smallest men to play the game, he grabbed a stab pass from Reg Hickey and ran 80 yards with the ball, evading all pursuers. Geelong were looking the better team and led by seven points at half-time. The third quarter saw the Cats take full advantage of the win. They were playing a better brand of football and their confidence was growing. Three goals could have been so much more, except for some dreadful inaccuracy. By three-quarter time, the Geelong supporters had smiles on their faces and were beginning to hope for the best. Geelong on eight goals 11.59, with a 24-point lead over the Tigers on five goals 5.35. But Richmond did have the wind in the last quarter. Doug Strang kicked an early goal, but Geelong were too strong. They held on for a 20-point win. Mickey Mouse Carney was best on the ground, and a 17-year-old Jack Dyer recalled how he'd been given a football lesson from Reg Hickey, despite doing everything to put him off his game. After the game, Hickey asked for his name. Jack Dyer, Mr Hickey, came the embarrassed reply. The only time in his career Dyer called an opponent Mr. Hickey said, Stick to it and you'll be a pretty good footballer one day. I think you'll be alright, son. Before he ran off to join the celebrations. Early newsreel footage of the Grand Final is available on YouTube. I'll put a link onto it on the grandfinalhistory.au website for this episode. After the speeches and congratulations in the change rooms, it was time to head to Geelong, who were ready to greet their heroes. 3,000 were at the station, and a brass band was playing on the platform. Players were carried shoulder-high to the town hall for speeches from the mayor, politicians, ex-players, and other officials. As for Richmond, the club president, Jack Archer, said Geelong were deserved premiers. Richmond had been runners-up five times in recent years, and were keenly disappointed. However, they were fighters and there would be other premierships to be won in the future, and Richmond would make a determined bid for the next premiership. Then, on the Monday, the Geelong players were back at the train station, heading off to Adelaide for a game against Port Adelaide, who had been runners-up in the South Australian competition. It was the first time a VFL premiership had travelled to Adelaide in many years. Previously, the Premiership teams from both competitions often played off for the Championship Team of Australia. Although how serious the celebrating clubs focused on those post-season games is an open question. And Geelong continued a tradition they started in 1926 when they buried a magpie at the Correo Oval after winning that grand final. 
This time, it was a tiger interred at Corio. Presumably, a toy this time. And the Richmond Beer advertising campaign that had offered £25 to the Tigers if they won their grand final had a generous outcome after the game. Mr Grant Hay paid £25 to Geelong and also donated £25 to a Richmond unemployment fund. The final months of the year saw some tense discussions over in the VFA as clubs in that competition struggled to remain viable. There was talk of moving to an eight-team competition and the perennial option of amalgamation with the VFL got an airing, but the recognition that no league team was going to agree to the possibility of relegation meant that this was not going to go far. In VFL matters, there was an important decision in regard to premierships. Up to this season, the premiership pennants had been designed in team colours, but from now on it would be a blue and white VFL pennant that would be awarded to the champion team. And in December, VFL officials travelled to Geelong to present the players with their premiership medallions. While the club was confident that they would have more success, it must be noted that Charlie Climo would not be back in 1932. He holds a unique record of coaching a VFL club for one season only and winning the premiership. Whether it was money or the lure of home, Charlie Climo would be back in Ballarat during season 1932. And the other issue bubbling along at the end of 1931 was the still contentious out-of-bounds rule that awarded a free kick against the team that last touched the ball. While this had resulted in more play in the centre of the ground and much higher scoring, it was not popular with many players and supporters. Several clubs conducted polls of their members alongside elections for officials and the overwhelming support was for a return to the old rule where the ball was thrown in after going out of bounds. We will see if this gets some traction next episode when we explore season 1932. Until then, we can let Geelong supporters enjoy their premiership and Richmond fans can contemplate how many times a club can be runners-up before they win the premiership. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. 